Welcome to the next edition of Business Law Focus. It's great having you with us, and it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Mansoor Parker, who's an executive in the tax practice at ENS Africa, to the show today. What we want to talk about is some progress on the implementation of very important corporate due diligence and accountability regulations out of the EU, and what this means for businesses in South Africa. But we also want to segue into how South Africa itself is adapting when it comes to, especially the ESG factors, and we want to zone in on how human rights is becoming a bigger element in implementing ESG and why it has to be looked at through a slightly different lens going forward. It's it's becoming far more prominent, far more um, um, operationally relevant for companies out there. And there's some cases, interesting cases happening. So I want to get to that. So so thanks very much for joining us. Great having you. Thank you very much, Evan. Thank you. Cool. We want to start with the new directive, um, which has uh, been implemented uh, via the EU. Um, It's likely to have far-reaching implications for supplies of goods and products in countries outside of the EU, like South Africa, right? That's correct. That's correct. The new directive is referred to as the EU Supply Chain Directive. The actual directive itself contains a whole bunch of requirements and and limitations and exceptions. But in essence, um, the the sectors in South Africa which will be highly affected by this uh, uh, regulation will be sectors such as agriculture, sectors such as minerals, um, who are importing into the EU. Um, these developments need to be monitored very carefully uh, uh, by those sectors. Um, they will require the, this directive will require that companies in this space carry out certain due diligence requirements into their supply chain. Primarily, companies who are in the EU have to satisfy these obligations, but it also applies extraterritorially to companies outside of the EU, which satisfy certain revenue, staffing, and activity requirements. Um, so what these requirements will do is impose ESG-related requirements into supply chain management for companies, which is bound to make that uh, more important, uh, given the, the prominence of the EU as a trading partner for uh, SA. When we did our assessment, um, we found that Europe um, continues to be one of the largest markets for SA's agricultural exports absorbing about 27% of total exports in 2020 in value terms. So when requirements are implemented in, in Europe, uh, which we don't comply with, that could have a devastating impact on the value of our exports. And of course, overseas, there's been quite a bit of ESG-related litigation as well. I mean, I suppose in one in one sense, there's a risk of higher costs, litigation costs, but it's also good to have this directive in place so you know what not to do, right? Because one of the issues that's arisen in the ESG space uh, concerns a disclosure. What do you disclose? To what extent do you disclose? And with there being such a variety of mandatory and voluntary reporting requirements, it has made things very difficult for companies um, uh, uh, to, to, to cope with the number and scope of the various disclosure requirements uh, which are applicable uh, to them. Where you have these requirements being legislated, what we can foresee is the disclosure risk uh, going higher up the priority scale uh, uh, for entities. And for those SA companies who are doing horizon scope and looking into the future of principal ESG-related litigation risks, things that they would have to keep in mind are inaccurate or misleading ESG reporting and disclosures, particularly but not only in respect of, of climate change. Mm-hmm. And these risks, I think, will continue to rise as companies report more regularly to shareholders and stakeholders 
on the ESG conduct and the, the, the ESG concerns. One of the interesting developments as well is the focus on the S, which um, is, is, you know, is, is obviously the societal impact and very much there the link between business and human rights is coming through quite strongly at, at the moment, which is, is going to be something to watch, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. The, and recently when Treasury released the green taxonomy, they, they dealt with the S in the ESG part of the uh, inquiry. Uh, and and the, the, the S links in with the E. So one starts it with the E, that once we satisfy that a relevant activity under consideration meets the required technical criteria and passes the do no significant harm inquiry, then we've completed the E and then we move on to the S part of the inquiry, which is the assessment of the minimum social standards uh, that must be achieved um, by ensuring compliance with the multiplicity of policies, procedures, and governance mechanisms. And these are derived from the ILO core labor conventions, OECD guidelines and multiple uh, multinational enterprises, UN guiding principles on business and human rights. So it's important in that in the totality of the scope that one does not forget about the S, uh, even though the climate-related focus under the E seems to have initially gained more prominence. Do you say that SA is, is quite well aligned uh, with what's happening in the rest of the world? Yeah, we've had the, the green taxonomy being uh, produced recently, which provides an indication of the technical and legal criteria, of the technical and legal criteria that would need to be fulfilled on a sector-by-sector -sector basis to be considered ESG-aligned from an SA perspective. We've had the sustainable finance uh, guide being produced. Uh, and, and a taxonomy is not meant to be a document that's cast in stone. It's meant to be a living document that's updated and will be expanded over time through a well-established uh, governance process. Uh, the guidance will consider emerging international best practices and approaches, uh, including work by the International Sustainability Standards Board. So this, this could help reduce that, that, that gap where you have different companies reporting ESG in different ways because they've defined what the terms mean differently. So having this set of common terms and common language will, will I think, uh, assist the implementation from industry. And of course, I think you mentioned sector by sector as well, where we're going to look at the different sectors and how it's implemented um, in SA specifically. Um, are there tax consequences to consider? And then one looks at tax, one needs to look at the EU directive in conjunction with other initiatives, such as the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, otherwise known as CBAM. Uh, a CBAM is a price which is charged to and paid by an importer on certain goods coming into the EU. Um, the idea there was to prevent there being um, a disparity between emissions reduction efforts in the EU and countries outside of the EU. So at its heart, what they wanted to prevent the situation where production facilities are moved to, say, a low carbon taxing environment country, and then the products are exported into the EU, which has the emissions deduction if it's in place. So the CBAM will look at, at uh, the, uh, those imported goods, uh, uh, goods imported into the EU, and if there is this uh, asymmetry uh, in the climate policies of the EU versus a non-EU country, then this additional price will be charged. For goods entering the uh, entering the EU, so we might not find the tax consequences in the one instrument only, but we have to look at the instrument, the EU Supply Chain Directive, in conjunction with others such as the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. 
And of course, when you look at this, you also want to, and I, sh- I know institutional investors are looking at the the cost and the rising cost of implementing all of this, um, yeah. but the value um, that that's seen from this um, is, yeah. is is the key, right? Yes, yes. And when we look at institutional investors who are um, keen on these discussions, there's a variety of them, uh, from banks to retirement funds to collective investment schemes to private equity participants to insurance companies. And each one might have slightly different risk tolerances. Mm. Uh, For instance, if you go to a retirement fund and you present to them a very good impact type investment, where you say that this investment will generate very positive and measurable social and environmental impacts, but you might have to give up a percentage point or two in financial return, then then the decision-making process for them could be quite difficult because they – they're thinking this is, these are the monies that's meant to fund the retirement of their members. Mm. Uh, whereas if you might go to a different uh, type of investor, that conversation might happen in a slightly different way. So the question of value and, and the particular type of institutional investor is a fundamental part of this conversation. Yeah, and we mentioned taxes featuring highly on the ESG agenda. I know you've been looking very closely for a long time now at the carbon tax evolution yeah. and developments in South Africa. It's now reality. It's real. Maybe give us a quick update on, on you know, are SA companies adapting fast enough to this new landscape? Yes. The carbon tax came in 2019, and the idea was to have a, uh, have a progressively um, um, impactful uh, carbon tax. So it came in at, the, at a light touch a fairly low carbon tax rate with many allowances which shielded the emissions uh, from tax. So the effective rates of carbon tax were quite low. In February this year, National Treasury announced its intention to ramp up those rates of carbon tax and also to remove or reduce the shield in the form of the allowances. Um, uh, and, and these rules will start uh, uh, coming into effect mainly from 2026 uh, onwards. So what we what we will see is is a graph which has a, a, a sort of an incremental increase in the rate of carbon tax from 2019 up until this year, and then it's going to start increasing gradually. And what's interesting about the proposed increases in the rates of carbon tax is that they're being priced in U.S. dollars, which will then be converted into SA rand. Um, when the taxes are paid. But by pricing the increases in U.S. dollars, it means that that the rate of tax which we pay will be will be dictated by the RAND's relationship to the U.S. dollar. So if the RAND continues to weaken against the U.S. dollar, we'll be looking at a progressively higher carbon tax rate uh, into the future. Um, and, and when we look at entities such as uh, ESCOM, um, uh, which has been protected from carbon tax through an electricity price neutrality commitment. Um, uh, has indicated that that commitment will be removed at some point in the future, probably by about 2026 onwards. And once ESCOM starts paying carbon tax, it will then no doubt apply to NASA for increases to the electricity tariffs which it might charge. And those higher tariffs will then be felt through the rest of the economy. So while companies who buy electricity from ESCOM either direct or through their local municipality might not be paying the carbon tax themselves, they will implicitly be paying the carbon tax which is embedded, which will become embedded in the price of electricity that they will be paying for. Um, so that will put the, the emphasis on things such as energy efficiency, uh, movement uh, towards renewable solar, wind power. Um, so I think that that uh, conversation is going to become a, a very important area over the course of the next 10, 15 years. 
Well, sir, just in conclusion, um, obviously we've seen the devastating floods in Pakistan. We've we've got big issues um, with um, sea levels rising significantly. Uh, new evidence showing it's faster than, than even expected. And um, uh, this the, the climate change bullet, you know, needs you know we need to avoid that at all costs. Is enough really being done? I mean, it, it looks like it's broadening a lot. There's a lot of pieces of paper out there, but is enough actually being done on the ground, or does a lot more still need to happen? Yeah, yeah. In the areas that I've been involved in, there's been a lot of activity happening, and it's been initiatives that's been passed into law. Um, so we've had the, the carbon tax. We now have the Climate Change uh, Act. It's still in the form of a bill, which is going through the parliamentary uh, process. And and once that gets passed into law in conjunction with the uh, with the carbon tax, that will hopefully shield us from the worst effects of, of issues like the CBAM or the EU Supply Chain uh, Directive. Uh, from a broader point of view, if we are to remain competitive and to attract the foreign investment that we need, I think we need to continue on our ESG uh, journey so that the process of transforming to a more sustainable economy, um, um, I don't think it's a choice anymore. It's something that, that we need to do. Our trading partners are imposing requirements which will affect our, our economy, our ability to, to, to continue to trade. And to attract further climate finance, uh, like the other types announced, COP26 will be enhanced if we continue on this ESG uh, journey. So I think we are on the right path. Monsieur, thanks for all those salient views. Been great chatting to you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, Evan.